And join me, please, this morning in Luke chapter 16. We will be looking at verses 19 through 31 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Our sermon is entitled Refreshment in Anguish. And our key words for our worshipers and training are rich, poor, and mercy. Now, the love of money does all sorts of weird and wicked things to our hearts. There are numerous examples throughout the history of the world of those who have said and done some of the most ridiculous things because of money. And the American celebrity is a unique breed of person when it comes to that reality. Every intimate details of their lives are being documented for all the world to keep up on the latest fling, the most recent fashion faux pas, on who's going where with whom on their next vacation. And they seem to have this mystical place of mind where they assume that they are more important and more significant than the average human being, that they are more worthy of all that they have. And others should respond to them in admiration and great awe. However, their love of money reveals just how jaded and corrupt their hearts really are. Let me, let me give you a few examples. Several individuals you may know. One, LL Cool J, a rapper. He said this, I try to do the right thing with my money. Save a dollar here and there, clip some coupons, buy 10 gold chains instead of 20, four summer homes instead of eight. Now, the only part of that I don't believe is that LL Cool J is sitting at home clipping coupons. Kanye West said in an interview once, I won't go into a big spiel about reincarnation, but the first time I was in the Gucci store in Chicago, that was the closest I've ever felt to home. He's a real Socrates. And perhaps the one for me that takes the cake of all, I bring to you from the ever-compassionate Mariah Carey. Whenever I watch TV and see those poor, starving kids all over the world, I can't help but cry. I mean, I'd love to be skinny like that, but not with all those flies and death and stuff. When a love of money is poured into the hearts of self-important people, the results are deadly, and the intentions of the heart are wicked, and the words of your mouth are utter foolishness. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus continue in his onslaught against the wicked hearts of the Pharisees. And in this instance, he deals once again with their love of money. Specifically, Jesus deals with people who show a hatred and a complete lack of compassion for those who are poor. And he points back to compassion as a sure indicator of unbelief and offers a dire warning for those who would follow in the way of their detractors. In 1 John 3, 17, the apostle writes, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? 
Likewise, James reminds us, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, the Bible is is very clear that a sure sign of a changed heart is that we are not looking down our noses at others because we assume ourselves to be more significant, to be more deserving, or to be at a higher place of humanity. The heart of a Christian looks at others with compassion, with a loving concern for others who, just like us, are created in the image of God, and just like us, are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. In our passage today, the rich man in Jesus' parable would be far more at home with LL Cool J and Kanye West and Mariah Carey than he would with most other people in the world. However, we will see how Jesus uses him to illustrate the reality of true poverty. True poverty that that resides most significantly not in the heart of a man named Lazarus who lacks all possessions, but rather in the heart of a rich man. The last parable we looked at of the dishonest dishonest manager addressed the proper use of money. This morning's parable confronts the abuse of money, especially by the rich, and it's a solemn warning. Let's begin reading together in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now Jesus begins his parable by giving us an introduction to the two primary characters in his story. The first is simply identified as a rich man. He would have been featured on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Now some of you are probably too young to know what I'm talking about. So MTV Cribs. Um, it was an 80s and 90s show that, that featured the extravagant lifestyles of wealthy entertainers and athletes and business moguls. And Leach used to end every one of his shows with the signature frame, uh, phrase, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. And this is who we have here in this rich man, living a very posh champagne and caviar kind of life. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every single day. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we meet this man named Lazarus, who laid by the rich man's gate, covered with sores, and his great desire was to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He wanted the table scraps. And Jesus makes the image even more striking when he tells us, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He was poor. He was homeless. He was a starving man. And Jesus is pointing out that the man is so ill, so debilitated because of his sores that he laid at the gate. 
He was helpless. He was sick. He was completely neglected. Lazarus's name means God has helped, which at this point in time simply seemed to be a mockery given his circumstances. But we'll see later in the parable that this rich man knows very well who Lazarus is. He knows him by name. But day by day by day, he walks by Lazarus and he completely ignores him. The fringe of his purple robe may may brush up against him from time to time and the the fragrance of his perfumes momentarily mix with Lazarus' body odor as he lay in want. They may have even locked eyes from time to time, but the rich man had no feeling in his heart for Lazarus. We get the impression that he may have even stepped over Lazarus to get where he was going. And he just became part of the surroundings. He was a permanent fixture that everyone completely ignored. One commentator writes, How could the rich man... Considering himself a son of Abraham and a blessed member of God's people, be so heartless. He certainly was not an atheist. He believed in God. His theology was probably orthodox. He would have affirmed the Torah and understood that after death came judgment. So why his total lack of compassion? He did not take seriously Holy Scripture, which he and the rest of his culture professed to believe. God's word is uniformly consistent about the necessity of mercy and compassion. And it is, isn't it? It's, very, it's the very law of God that commands us to show compassion, to love our neighbor as ourself. More specifically, the, the sixth commandment teaches us that to murder is a lawless deed. But with every law, we have to consider the opposite inference. So herein, it is that to obey, to uphold the sixth commandment is to protect or to preserve life. You see, when, when we have the ability to protect life, to preserve life, and we don't do it, We're not simply being unkind. We're not simply being negligent. We are breaking God's law. And if you're thinking about that right now, I'm guessing it's bringing all kinds of questions to mind about the poor and the homeless and how the church should respond to that. And that's a very, very important thing that we have to consider. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most difficult issues that a church is called to deal with because it comes with so many complex, layered issues. However, I am not so sure that the primary problem with American evangelicalism when it comes to compassion is that we're doing it wrong. I think the real question is whether or not we are doing it at all. The prophet Micah said, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
The prophet Hosea provides the words of God, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Like a repetitive drumbeat all throughout the Bible, we are told that we cannot please God without having a merciful, compassionate spirit. And as a Jew, this rich man knew the law of God. He knew God's command to love his neighbor as himself. But he didn't take the commandments seriously. So what happens? Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Jesus makes this contrast here even more apparent when he doesn't refer to Lazarus even by name here, but he says, the poor man. And what happens to him? He dies and he goes to heaven. He is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some versions say Abraham's bosom, which so beautifully indicates compassion and tender, affectionate care. Now the rich man, he also died. He was buried, but he went to Hades. He was in hell. He was in torment. And he could see Abraham and he could see Lazarus by his side, but he remained in utter misery. Now, there are many things to be learned from these two verses. The first being most clearly that Lazarus had true saving faith and the rich man had none. The words of James are on vivid display among these two men. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, The rich man, like the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to, would have undoubtedly said he had a very strong faith in God. However, what did that supposed faith get him? True faith in God will translate into good works, and those works will be consistent with loving God, with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. The rich man had no love for his neighbor, Lazarus. He only had contempt and disgust and disdain. He wanted him to move away. But this poor man lived by faith and he walked in the steps of Abraham. The rich man was thoughtless and selfish, dead in his trespasses and sins. You know, there's a strange notion among people and it's not new and it's always been the case That people who have the most in terms of material possessions are those who supposedly should be most highly esteemed. Think about that. Why, Why is it that movie stars and musicians always are used to make political advertisements and tour the country, giving their opinion on this and that whenever an issue arises? I always have to ask, what qualifies a Hollywood celebrity to speak to political and ethical and theological issues? At best, their credentials are that they played the role of a legislator on TV. But you see, because they have money and they have a public platform, 
Everyone around them assumes that their opinion means something and that it should be heeded. Have you seen how people act around celebrities? Have you ever seen what happens when a celebrity is spotted in public and how everyone responds? What is that all about? Why are we so enamored with their lives? Brothers and sisters, for Christians, that must not be. We must reject such silly notions that a celebrity is somebody simply because they have wealth and everybody knows their name. There's no authority for this in the Bible. In fact, the general teaching of scriptures is that which flatly opposes such an attitude. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. The prophet Jeremiah says, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You know, the damning heretical teaching of the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, the name it and claim it word of faith movement, it's all over. You just turn on your TV and you see it. It's all built upon this premise that is absolutely opposed to the teaching of God in the Bible. Wealth is no mark of God's favor, and poverty is no mark of God's displeasure. In fact, those whom God justifies and glorifies are seldom those who are rich in this world. Now, God certainly can and does and will continue to save those who are rich, but Jesus repeatedly reminds us that it is hard for a rich man to go to heaven. And guess what, brothers and sisters? By any measure of the world, every single one of us in here this morning is filthy rich. And that should challenge us to the core. That should raise all kinds of important questions for every one of us. How generous are we with what God has given to us? How are we showing compassion as individuals, but also as a church? Listen, it's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have tremendous wealth. However, what we do with that wealth speaks directly to the condition of our hearts. If we would measure men as God measures them, it will not be according to the amount of money in their bank account or the size of their house. The measure with which to evaluate man is according to the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Now, another lesson this parable teaches us is that all men come to the same end in this life. We will all die. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor, how skinny or how fat, how healthy or how unhealthy you eat, how much exercise you do or don't do, you will die. And you will be buried in the same ground as everyone else. We see here Lazarus and the rich man come to the same end. They both died. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, all men go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. 
And this is a fact that everyone seems to acknowledge, but very few take seriously at all. When someone we know or loves dies, and we are brought to remember this undeniable reality of life in a fallen world, very few seem to take that time to recognize the reality that we will soon be there as well. Do you know that you will soon die? What then? See, most people eat and drink and talk and plan their lives as if they were going to live on this earth forever. Christians have to be on guard against such things. We must live life, not as though it will go on forever, but remembering that the end is near. It will be a sure guard against pride and self-sufficiency and arrogance. It will keep us from despairing in these present evil days. So what happens in death? For a believer, we see what happens in Lazarus. All of his bodily suffering and torment and want came to an instant end. He was tenderly cared for and affectionately loved. But for the rich man, his pleasure had been lived out already. His feasting and and parading around in his purple robe came to an end. He had already lived out his best life. And now he would suffer a torment unknown even to Lazarus in his years on the earth. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke 6? He said, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You see, the rich man's reward was all that he had already enjoyed on the earth. Lazarus' reward awaited him an everlasting life in heaven. And this is at the heart of how we live. Are we living as a people seeking to get in the best we can here and now in all of this life, even if that means disobeying God and rejecting his will and his law? Or are we sacrificing ourselves and all that we have for the sake of God's glory that we might have the everlasting riches of heaven? It's temporary. It's a momentary sacrifice that we might have never-ending gain. Which would you rather have? 60, 70, 80 years of wealth and prosperity on the earth that comes only by hard work and the sweat of your brow? Or an everlasting life of glory? So what happens in death? What happens in your death? What happens for the Christian? Do you see God's care for his beloved in the hour of death? When Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. J.C. Ryle said there is something very comforting in this expression. We know little or nothing of the state and feeling of the dead when our own last hour comes and we lie down to die. We shall be like those who journey into an unknown country, but it may satisfy us to know that all who fall asleep in Jesus 
are in good keeping. They are not houseless, homeless wanderers between the hour of death and the day of resurrection. They are at rest in the midst of friends with all who have had like faith with Abraham. They have no lack of anything. And best of all, Paul tells us, they are with Christ. You see, Christians, when we die, our souls are brought directly to heaven. We do not endure some kind of in-between state. We do not, as the false teaching of Roman Catholicism supposes, enter into some weird state of purgatory. We are once and for all with Christ and among the family of faith forever and ever and ever. And at the day of the resurrection, our bodies will be raised up from the ground, but in an instant, we join Christ in paradise. Does that comfort your restless soul? If you are a believer in Christ, I hope that it does. I hope that we find great comfort in all of our suffering, in all of our trials in this life, to know that it is but a short time. But soon we will die, and we will rest with Christ. We have no need to fear death. What's the worst that comes in this life? Suffering, pain, torture? It's a light, momentary affliction compared to all of the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. But what of the rich man? What was his experience after death? Look at verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there. To us. It is not a joyful thing to consider everlasting anguish in hell, but it is absolutely necessary. The Lord Jesus tells us very plainly that the rich man went to hell. He was tormented. He was, as we read in verse 24, in anguish in the flame. What a pitiable thing! That a man who feasted lavishly in this earthly life and never once even extended a finger to help Lazarus was now asking Abraham to send Lazarus to help him. He calls him Father Abraham. He's probably assuming he was in good standing since he was his kinsman. So he should have the right to call the shots. He always had. Why any different now? Do you see the absolute arrogance and pride in his heart? Even when the man stands in the torment of hell, he still assumes he's deserving. He still assumes he is worthy. He still assumes that others are there at his service. Send Lazarus. You know, the man that I I left writhing and suffering and pain every single day. 
Send him to cool my tongue. The tongue that feasted each day while he laid starving. You see the heart of natural, sinful man. It is an utterly foolish notion to assume that any man, apart from God's sovereign, heart-transforming work, could ever come to his senses on his own, could ever see his lostness and his need for Christ. Even in judgment, the rich man mocks God because he is still Lord in his own eyes. But Abraham, with all tenderness, explains to the rich man that he has already received his reward. He had not a spiritual right to share in the blessing because it wasn't about his being Jewish. It was whether or not he had manifested true faith that translated into true works. Besides, Abraham tells him the chasm between the two was far too great. It was fixed. No amount of sympathy could reach across. You see, while in the world, the rich man could have reached to Lazarus at any time. But once the judgment came, it was too late. The gulf between the two was uncrossable. This is frightening. There is no chance for repentance. There is no hope of I didn't know or I didn't mean it once we die. There are no do-overs after we die. And there is a certainty of an endless and future punishment of the wicked. And every day since Adam's sin in the garden, there has never been a lack of those who have lived for themselves instead of God. But you see, the gospel is proclaimed far and wide, and the law of God is on the hearts and consciences of every man. We are without excuse. If men and women find themselves in everlasting torment, it will not be because there was no way of escape. And friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know and trust and love Jesus Christ and submit to him as Lord, what happens when you die? Do you know that you will die very soon? It may not be tomorrow. It may not even be in 10 years. But in the end, you will realize that your life it was very quick. Very quick. It's short. It's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. When you stand before God to give an account for your life, what will you say? Because God's standard of judgment is his holy and perfect law. And you, my friends, have broken every commandment. And I have too. So what can we do? What can we say? Where do we turn? We turn to Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, living a perfect life and fulfilling the entire law of God in the way which we could never do. He died a horrific sinner's death and in doing so took upon himself the full wrath of the Father that was reserved for every child of God. And by faith, when we put all of our trust and hope in him alone, repenting of our sins and recognizing before God that we are rebellious, that we are his enemies, the death that Christ has died becomes a death died on my behalf. And the righteous life that Jesus lived becomes a righteousness of my own.
God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. My, my sins are punished in him and his righteousness is credited to me. And my friend, if you are apart from Christ, I sincerely fear for you and I'm pleading with you to consider Christ. Our Father takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. But indeed, if you are not in Christ, you are numbered among the transgressors and you stand condemned already. Listen, I have no intention of trying to scare anybody into some prayer or to give you some form of fire insurance. I simply ask you to consider your life and the truth of what you're hearing from God's word this morning. What will happen when you stand before God after you die? What will you tell him? What is your hope? I pray that it is Christ alone. Let's finish this passage, verse 27, and he said, Then I beg of you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Upon learning that he has no escape, the rich man seems a bit concerned for his brother's And while he lived, he had most certainly never done anything whatsoever for their spiritual good. They had probably been his companions in worldliness all along, and like him, they had neglected their souls entirely. But he dies, and he faces the just reward of his guilt. And he hopes now that maybe his brothers would be called to repentance, that they too need not endure everlasting anguish. Notice what the rich man wants. Notice how he says this. He thinks that the word of God is not sufficient. You see, what they need is for someone who has died to go to them and to call them to repentance. In other words, it will be a miracle that convinces them, not the sure word of God. But the final word comes from Abraham. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That already happened. And nobody looks to Jesus who's been risen from the dead with a heart that hasn't been transformed and says, oh, now I believe. They reject it. You see, Jesus was punching the Pharisees directly in the gut with his words. For quite some time, they had witnessed him healing thousands upon thousands of people. They saw him make food for countless numbers out of thin air. He cast out demons. He showed his great power over the forces of nature. And yet they still rejected him and they still sought to kill him. You see, there wasn't a miracle around that could change their minds. 
All they need to know of God and what he requires is contained in the scriptures. And brothers and sisters, that has not changed today. Unfortunately, there are many today who still insist that what's needed is not just the word of God, but that it must be accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. They deny that the scriptures contain all that we need in order to be saved. But as Abraham implies, what more could a dead man tell us that the Bible itself already contains? You know, I frequently get emails from people wondering about Ephesus Church, and I'm so thankful for that. I love talking about our church and what God is doing here. But every now and then, when people ask about what we teach, I tell them, uh, I tell them all about, you know, whatever their question is, but I get some interesting responses. Recently, I explained to a person who was inquiring about our church that we don't believe in the continuation of miraculous sign gifts like tongues and and prophecy and healings and things like that. And so this person began to explain to me what went on in their former church. We had services where it was nothing but complete praise and worship. Our pastor would abandon his sermon And you would not believe the miracles that happened during those times. God has so much more for us than this little box. God wants to do so much more in our services, and yet he's kept in a box. You know, it's nice to get a fresh word from God. There are times when we need that. I could go on and on. God is so good, and he does want more for you. Did you hear that? Abandoning the preaching of the revealed, written, inspired, infallible, sufficient word of God to receive a fresh word. And for this person and for millions of others, what they are saying is the Bible is not enough. The scriptures are not sufficient. And this man, this rich man in our parable was clearly of that mind. Show them a sign. Send them someone from the dead. Do a miracle. Give them physical evidence so that they might see. Ah, How arrogant we are as human beings. Daring to tell God what he must do if we're to believe him. If God would just send us some ambassadors from the other side, great multitudes surely would believe. Would they? The resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ shouts a resounding no. So Abraham responds, the word of God is enough. They have all that they need to know. Simple faith in what the scriptures teach us, in that which we already possess in the word of God, is the first thing needful for true salvation. The man who has his Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he submits to the authority of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith is only deceiving himself. And if he does not come to his senses and repent and believe on Christ, he will die in his sins and he will join the rich man 
in eternal torment. Jesus himself, you see, came from heaven to earth. And he stood right there before him. All of the Pharisees were hearing the very word of truth from truth itself. And though some believed, many, like the rich man and his brothers, did not. Indeed, even after Jesus' death, those who had hardened their hearts to God's word refused Jesus, even after he walked out of his own tomb. You see, the real issue is that God gave us the law and the prophets and the apostles to bring us face to face with our sin and with our impotence and our need of Christ. But the rich man never really thought about any of that. A surface reading of this parable might indicate that the rich man missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money, but that's not the case. The true reason for his damnation was his disregard for God's word and his rejection of the Lord. He did not believe the scriptures, and in not believing, it did not work itself out into true compassion. And he certainly did not think his disregard would land him in hell. To think that someone like him, living in such abundance, can miss heaven. And yet without Christ, such is the case. What we do with what we have is a sure indicator of our spiritual condition. It's all very telling of our hearts. So the scriptures ask me, And you, the real question that's at the heart of all of this, is Christ enough? Let's pray. Father, your word is a powerful double-edged sword. It pierces through joint and marrow. It brings conviction of sin. It reminds us of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ alone. It reminds us of what you have done and what you have brought us from out of darkness into light. In making us your people, new creations in Christ. And it tells us what you require of us. And God, I, I trust that we, we believe that your word is sufficient and that Christ is enough. However, Lord, I know that in our flesh we struggle with that. We struggle against it. Our temptation is always to deny that reality. But Father, I pray that you do remind us that you do give us a greater love for your word, a greater love for Christ, that we not seek after something else, that we not seek to find our hope in our riches, and that we seek to gain more and more and more at the expense of loving and serving others, but rather that our hearts are conformed to your word. Our minds are transformed and renewed. And that our love for you is exhibited exhibited in our love for others. 
that we show compassion to our neighbor, that we love them by the works of our hands, by the true words of our mouths that come from hearts that love you. Make us to be, oh God, a compassionate, loving people who trust you at your word and seek our refuge in you alone. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know Christ, send the Holy Spirit. Awaken them. Give them new life in Christ that they would live for your glory and not themselves, that they would reject the false hope of this world that only brings death and everlasting torment and destruction. Lord, I know that they are searching all around to find satisfaction and they continue to come up short because the satisfaction they were made to find is Christ alone. May it be this morning that they would repent of their sin and put all of their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Father, would you do that for your glory that we with all the angels of heaven might rejoice. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.